Welcome back to Defenders TV Podcast. This is episode 20 of our podcast where we're covering Ant-Man the movie. Yes, welcome back to Defenders TV Podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Derek. I'm one of your hosts, Irene. And I'm your third and final host this week, John. Um, Chris is in absentia. <laughs> He's at a wedding, not his own, I hasten to add. Um, so he unfortunately can't be with us uh, this week. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Sorry we can't uh, can't bring you all four of us for uh, for this particular podcast, but we will be talking about Ant-Man, the new film from, from Marvel Studios. Uh, it is one of the Marvel Cinematic Universe films. It's the, uh, it's the final one in phase two of... Um, of the Marvel series. Uh, we will talk about what that means a bit later on and whether it really accomplishes a, a kind of a, a full stop in the phase two of the universe or, and what it sets up for phase three, I think. Ant-Man will return. Yes. And indeed, there are a few hints on phase three. Yeah. That got me slathering at the chops. I think so, <laughs> I think so. Um, obviously, there will be full spoilers for the movie Ant-Man, so if you haven't seen the movie, time to switch off, go see it, and uh, and then come back and listen to our thoughts and see uh, and share yours with us. Yeah, uh, this is going to be spoilery McSpoilery. <laughs> of old spoiler town, definitely. Yes. Um, please make sure you subscribe to the podcast at defenderstvpodcast.com slash iTunes. And if you want to send us any feedback, you can send it to feedback at defenderstvpodcast.com. Yeah. In addition to Ant-Man, we also have our review of Avengers Age of Ultron released earlier this year. And of course, all 13 episodes of the Marvel Netflix hit show Daredevil in its first season. And again, not only on iTunes, but also any other good podcast catcher. Just search Defenders TV Podcast. Mm -hmm. And finally, we've also started our coverage of Agent Carter. Our first episode is up at the moment. Um, we will be doing uh, an episode a week until that eight-episode series is finished as well. Uh, thanks very much for joining us today. Uh, guys, let me get your first impressions of Ant-Man. Irene? Um, I really liked it. I had been looking for reviews online and most of them were very short and they were just, you know, um, saying Paul Rudd as Scott Lang and <laughs> Corey Stoll as Darren Cross. Um, but obviously then this is probably going to be out with most of the reviews. Hopefully the podcast will be just behind us. Mm -hmm. um, uh, people were mostly positive, but reading the reviews, it seemed to be people who kind of weren't really into Marvel. And right. they liked it because it wasn't as Marvel formula, Mar Marvel formulaic kind of. Yeah. Um, and they were saying that it was Marvel light and that's what made it good. And obviously I'd like to contest that. <laughs> <laughs> I think that it, it was slightly different, but mm -hmm. I, I don't know if that, that's not, I don't think that's what made it better. I just thought it was really good. Yeah. Um, at the end, I was thinking, I just really want to see the next one now, which obviously is going to be not next week or anything, unfortunately. I'm so used uh, to my episodes. <laughs> Spoiled. That, that is definitely a Marvel trait, definitely, to make you want to go and see the next one. Yeah, yeah. And it did say at the end credits, Ant-Man will return, so he is going to be back. Mm -hmm. So you don't have that long to wait, Irene. Exactly, exactly. John, what's your initial thoughts? I agree with Irene. Um, I really like this movie. Um I know this is going to sound a bit cheesy, a bit cliched, but it actually grew on me um, from small beginnings. It really did uh, <laughs> genuinely grow on me. It got better and better as the film progressed towards the end. So the big final scene 
um, and, and fight off between Yellow Jacket and Ant-Man. I thought it was um, really, really good. And then chucked into that the two post-credit scenes. And for me, um, these are two of the best, in my opinion, equivalent to the Loki and Dr. Selvig uh, scene, where it really meant something to other films. Um, and it wasn't just a genuine sort of cast-off jokey one. I mean, they're fine as well, but these, to me, they felt like they meant something. But overall, it really grew on me from the beginning where it just kind of introduced the characters and it just grew and developed. And I must say, I really liked it. And I think I agree with Irene. It it did have Marvel elements to it, obviously. Um, but it did also feel like a classic action hero, actually. Um, and certainly tying in that family element, which you've not really seen in, in Marvel before. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That really felt like sort of a classic action movie you know you think of die hard with him saving his his, his ex-wife and that family elements you you think of face off and the family involved in it all those kind of action movies you know like do we have to think of face off yes you're thinking of like um jingle all the way yeah <laughs> you know it's his son and it's funny but then obviously there's a serious element as well like where he's trying to beat the other guy <laughs> I love it. Yeah. So I'm 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 with Irene. I really really like this movie. Um, it was a good, um, solid movie. Derek, what are your thoughts? Uh, yeah, I think we've got a bit of a threefer. Um, really do like this film. Uh, was kind of surprised that I did. Um, I kind of came to it not knowing much about Ant Man. I, I am a, definitely a comic book fan, so I've seen the Ant Man character. I've seen Goliath. I've seen Yellow Jacket over the years. All those characters have appeared in many comics that I've read, but haven't really known much about the story other than kind of the headline points. Um, knowing this was coming in as originally supposed to be directed by one of my favorite directors, Edgar Wright, got me really excited about it about three and a half years ago. But unfortunately, Edgar Wright left the project. So it was given to a director that I don't know much about, Peyton Reed. Um, so I had a little bit of trepidation going in, but started to get cautiously optimistic as we got closer to the film and then going in and seeing it. Yeah, I think, John, you're absolutely right. First half hour or so when they're setting up all these brand new characters that I don't know much about. Uh, it took me a little time to get into, but by the end of the film, I was totally behind uh, everybody involved. I kind of felt like maybe it was aimed at a younger audience mm -hmm. than Age of Ultron, maybe, you know, definitely than Age of Ultron aimed at a younger audience. And I thought maybe the whole the storyline with his daughter was added to make it that way. To, yeah, because... Yeah, and not because of Thomas the Tank Engine in particular, because I laughed my head off at that bit. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, you know, even just that, like, it kind of makes it seem like younger kids would be interested in this much more than they would be in one of the more serious kind of, you know, the superhero angst thing and yeah. the battle within himself and everything. He didn't have that as much. Yeah, and, and in fairness, like, they had the cute kid thing. Um, you know, it was kind of like the Jerry Maguire thing where you had the cute uh, daughter there. And, um, you know, it was kind of like... Ah, like she's saying such like adulty things, but in a child way. It's yeah. so nice. Like, I mean, I, I kind of like that. I thought it was yeah. good. When she said, I hope you don't catch him. It's the childhood innocence, both the, you know, telling the truth thing. The thing that yeah. an adult wouldn't say out loud. Exactly. You know? it, and it, it's it's a real, f like, fine balancing act to get, you know, the child actor right. And certainly in such a big movie and certainly were. Like, in fairness, she had some really central scenes there um, with Paul Rudd Definitely. as as her father, Scott, uh, Scott Lang. Um, so 
I thought that was really good, actually. Really enjoyed it. Yeah, yeah definitely. All right. Well, I think that's enough for our general thoughts. We'll get into full detail as we go through the, uh, the episode. Uh, but, John, do you want to give us the synopsis for Ant-Man? Former S.H.I.E.L.D. scientist Dr. Hank Pym, played by Michael Douglas, has been trying to keep his greatest discovery, Pym particles, under wraps for 40 years. The particles allowed Hank to reduce his size, but increase his strength, becoming an almost invisible weapon for many years, with the code name Ant-Man. In order to keep him from being affected by the Pym particles, Hank also creates a special shrinking suit and protective helmet. But unfortunately, despite the suit's protection being Ant-Man, has taken a terrible toll on Dr. Hank Pym, as he has lost his wife to the subatomic level. When the new head of Pym Technologies, Darren Cross, played by Corey Stoll, discovers the secret plans to Pym particles hidden deep in the research unit, he attempts to make his own version of the Ant-Man suit, the weapon-laden Yellow Jacket. Dr. Pym is alerted to Cross's attempt by his estranged daughter, Hope Van Dyne, played by Evangeline Lilly. Hank must enlist the help of the recently released prisoner Scott Lang, Paul Rudd, to take down Cross before his invention is sold into the hands of Hydra. Scott has his own problems to overcome as he's trying to play it straight after years in prison and lead a better life for himself but also to be the hero his daughter has always known him to be. As the inferior yellow jacket suit begins to affect the mind of the already unstable Darren Cross, Scott must push himself past the limits of what Hank told him was possible to save his young daughter Cassie and the world. It's a nice story. It's real concise. I mean, one of the things I always thought with when we did The Age of Ultron, it just felt a bit sprawly, mm. um, a bit too much going on. Um, and I really like aspects of it where it was tight and focused. This, to me, is a really nice, tight, focused film that introduces this whole new world. Um, and in particular, I am going to start this off um, with my first point. Ooh. To say that, yes, whilst it is technically the end of Phase 2, it does give us hints and very exciting hints for me um, into Phase 3. In particular, we have the whole subatomic element Mm -hmm. where um, we see that the the central belt area can be, is a a limiter almost. It restricts how small the suit can shrink down. And if you mess with it or change it, you can actually shrink even further down to the subatomic level. That's what um, Hank Pym warns uh, Scott Lang about, and because that's how he loses his wife, the original Wasp, mm-hmm. um, which we we see a flashback to how she dies um, eventually, uh, which is again a real sad element, but. This moves almost goes beyond Thor and the worlds and, and so on, and goes deeper past the physical reality into other realms um, and sort of into different ideas of what the mind can construct. And for me, that is just Doctor Strange. Oh, yes, it is. That is Stephen (laughs) Strange. This is a big hint, I think, to Stephen Strange and a real good connector between now Ant-Man and the Doctor Strange movie. And they're seeing Ant-Man will return. And maybe it will involve Dr. Stephen Strange. Yes, yes. So dead excited. Obviously, if you haven't listened to any of these podcasts before, I am a massive Dr. Strange, Stephen Strange fan. 
awesome, 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 awesome. So that really did hook me into this film, as you can well imagine. I will tell you, listeners, I was sitting in the cinema beside John while he was watching the movie, and the mere mention from uh, from Michael Douglas's character, Hank Pym, of, uh, of alternate dimensions and smaller worlds and different... Delta Zones, I think he mentions yeah. at one point, um, had John jumping out of his seat in excitement of the idea that, that this could mean that Doctor Strange will be enlisted to help him find his his wife, uh, Janet Van Dyne. Yeah, like I always thought they were going to bring in Doctor Strange through the Thor element mm-hmm. and through the 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 you know the Norse sort of tree of life and and all these different worlds correcting connecting around Asgard. I always thought that was how they were going to introduce him. Uh, but to do it through a real like physical uh, way, through a human way, a, 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 an earthly way of shrinking down and miniaturizing and just going beyond the, the particulate level, amazing, really good. Yeah. <laughs> I can't wait. <laughs> oh, 2016, uh, it's such a good year. A vintage, no doubt. Hopefully. So after all these months of hearing uh, hearing John get excited about Doctor Strange, Irene, what do you think of uh, of the possibility of that crazy psychedelic world being part of the next film? Well, I was thinking the Wasp Easter egg. Mm-hmm. It, then they sh- when they showed the extra scene that had Evangeline Lilly Hope looking at the suit. Mm-hmm. I was thinking, are they not going to do that then? Are they not going to bring Janet back into us? They're just going to concentrate on her? Or is she actually going to be the one that goes and tries to save her mother? Potentially, yeah, absolutely. I think they're definitely setting up that there will be a wasp in this world who is who is Hope Van Dyne. Got to remember, I suppose, that uh, that they say early on in the movie that, uh, that Janet Van Dyne disappeared earlier than 1989. Um, so at this stage, and it's in pre- set in present day, so at this stage she'd be quite old, and she will have spent a long time in, in that small fly suit or small wasp suit. Yeah, she it. could be totally messed up. Or she could be dead anyway. Yeah, dead or <laughs> messed up. Maybe Dormammu, like, we're, ate her. We're, we're, <laughs> we're hoping she's not dead or messed up. That's really negative. No, but she could <laughs> be. Like, she could have gone crazy in the netherworld, the nether regions of the netherworld. Yeah, you might you want know? her back. Yeah. <laughs> Leave like, her. Completely gone, like, fried her neurons with, like, what's going on. Yeah. Because yeah. when Pim says that it took its toll on him, Yeah. Exactly. I didn't think that was just because she went missing. I thought he, you know, physically, obviously, there has to be some effect of reducing and enlarging yourself all the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and they make reference to that with with Darren Cross, um, like when he's selling, trying to sell the suit. They make reference to the fact that his constant shrinking and and then reanimating up to normal size mm. has taken a toll because he's not had the same level of protection that um, Hank Pym has. Yeah. So, so they make reference to that as well. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. yeah. I actually got the feeling that that Hank Pym was saying that the only real effect that's had on him was being a superhero and his wife dying triumphantly as a superhero to save the world has had that effect on him to push him away from his daughter to to separate him away from and lose his wife I suppose um, that is the big effect that it's had on him he leaves S.H.I.E.L.D. because somebody else wants to take the technology away He's his life in in essence is ruined because he spent the rest of his years trying to get his wife back because of his creation essentially so not phys- not physical repercussions um, just... apart yeah. from him just being older and not being able to to walk as well as he used to be I think yeah. that's the only yeah the only one yeah but but then that I could see yeah but then also just with the subatomic element you know the fact that 
um, Scott Lang comes back from the mm. subatomic level, from that other dimension, that, um, you know, fuels him with hope then. And it obviously fuels me with hope that uh, this is going to be a connector in with, with Doctor Strange. Mm-hmm. Um, it could even be a, a connector in with Civil War and Doctor Strange and so on. So that could be really interesting. And of course, um, yeah, Dormammu and Baron Mordo oh. and, you know, yeah. <laughs> Well, I'm going to take it right back to the beginning of this film um, for uh, for my first point, if that's all right, um, because it was a shocking, wonderful start to this film as we as we have a very young looking Michael Douglas uh, walking into Shield HQ in 1989 and meeting up with Howard Stark, played again by John Slattery, who played uh, the the elder Stark in uh, Iron Man 2. And also Peggy Carter, our lovely Peggy Carter, Hayley Atwell, aged up again. Um, yeah, it's a really interesting scene, I thought, just purely from a technical perspective, firstly. Um, the fact that you have a de-aged Michael Douglas looking very like he did in the in the 90s and, and late 80s, and a, an aged-up Hayley Atwell, who's only about 31, I think, 32, um, who's yeah. supposed to look older than him. And I think that they've done a really great job. They all look like they are in the same scene. There's probably a lot of CGI work done again in, in there. But really excitingly... It's Peggy Carter still working for Shield in 1989, so uh, really exciting. That was really good, and the Triskelion being built there Mm -hmm. in Washington, so that was really cool. Yeah. Yeah. So I think you you mentioned, Arian, that uh, that a lot of the reviews have been saying that this isn't as connected to the Marvel universe. I would say it's fundamentally connected to all the previous films we've seen since uh, since the end of of the Avengers movie. This is telling you that you know that Hank Pym was a former agent of S.H.I.E.L.D., that Hydra are still active. Yeah, like, even the mention of Hydra, I was like, yeah. how, yeah. how, or did people miss that? Or is it more, do they mean that the actual style of the film just isn't? But some of the reviews were definitely saying that it's it's more standalone. And yeah. I didn't get that at all. No, I didn't. Yeah, I, I wonder if it's just, a, if it's the feeling that you can just take it as, oh, well, that's a bad guy and you don't need to know the details as much as you would have in the previous films, perhaps. That's what they mean. But, um, but I definitely think this connection with S.H.I.E.L.D. was something I wasn't expecting um, to bring in such a big character like Peggy Carter, who's now, now appeared in uh, three uh, of the of the Marvel movies and has her own TV show and another season to come. Um, she's starting to become a big a big character now that Coulson's gone off the TV. So uh, it's kind of interesting <laughs> to see that. Yeah. Irene, what's, uh, what's your first point? I'm going to stay with the start of the film as well. I thought the prison scene with Peaches, the, the fight in that, <laughs> I thought that was really funny. And I thought it was a really nice start to it because you get a feeling for him, like, but yeah. he, straight away you're you're on his side, like, and even even when he's released then and he's coming out and he's he's doing the tough guy act, like he has the black jacket and the, you know, the James Dean hair and he's striding out of the prison and then as soon as he starts talking to Louise, you're like, that's not what you're like, is it at all? <laughs> like, <laughs> I don't know. I thought it made him much more human, for lack of a better word. Like, yeah. He's much more everyman. Which I thought was really nice because you get to, you're going, that's like Peter Parker. You know, it's just this kid that lives with his granny and, you know, I really like that. And that as well to me, not to keep mentioning this, but that's kind of in keeping with the whole superhero thing. And, you know, even though he's maybe not as as 
belt and stuff, but he did have the marble abs. Oh, he did. <laughs> he did get the marble abs. <laughs> he did. Didn't he? I wasn't expecting that. Whoa. He doesn't look like that's what under that's what's under the t-shirt. No. <laughs> no. <laughs> well, Hope couldn't keep her eyes off them either. So. Yeah. 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 Neither could I. I was like, oh. <laughs> I was drawn in like a, a, a moth to a light bulb. Oh. I, I couldn't help wondering if it was effects. <laughs> like, is that just for that scene they've done that? Poor but Paul apparently Paul. not. Poor Paul. Apparently he had nothing nice for a whole year. Oh. He can now punch his. He can now punch his fist to a wall. <laughs> yeah, I totally agree with you. Aaron. The, the that opening scene in the, in the prison is a fantastic way of setting up the character. Um, I do like the. Uh, I didn't realize this was the ritual you guys would have to say goodbye to the to, uh, yeah. to someone leaving prison is to punch them in the face as hard as you can. Um, Bit your eyebrow. <laughs> excellent opening moment, and it does. It does lead to the introduction of Lewis, who is one of my favorite characters in the film, played by Michael Pena. Um, he does a it does a really interesting job. A very different character than we've seen in in the Marvel universe. Seemed like something out of Ocean's Eleven almost. Yeah, uh, leads yeah. to two of the best flashback sequences I think I've seen in films in years, where he does the voiceover. Um, uh, I was so yeah. I couldn't stop laughing. <laughs> Fantastic. That was great. That was really really good. Because he's speaking so quickly, and then mm-hmm. it, you know obviously it's say especially when it's a girl's face. And yes. she's, yeah. her mouth's moving really quickly, but just his voice. I just, I just thought that was so funny, especially at the end with the Absol- Chinese girl. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> absolutely. And with, um, and with Stan Lee's little cameo there. Yeah, and Stan yeah. Lee talking with Michael Pena's uh, voice was was brilliant. Um, I think those are great characters. These th- the three backup, um, I suppose backup. Yeah, Louis, criminals. Kurt, and Dave. Um, like they were really good light relief, actually. Mm. Um, I, I, and they worked really well together. And yeah, Louis in particular just worked so well in bouncing off Scott Lang's character, off Paul Rudd's. That 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 really worked for me. Um, interesting thing is that Kurt, who was the tech guy uh, in that group, um, played by David Dasmalkin, he was in The Dark Knight. Yeah, Ooh. Thomas so, Schiff. Yeah, mm-hmm. he was one of the Joker's henchmen or goons and he was dressed up there in the police uniform at the attempted murder and assassination of the mayor. Mm-hmm. Um, and ultimately, I think, then gets interrogated. I think it's by Harvey Dent in the back of the ambulance. Yes. Um, so, yeah, it was good. I was there going, what's he been in? I recognise him. I was trying to think and, yeah, I looked it up later. So that was really good. And then, obviously, then there was Dave who was played by... Um, Two letters of the alphabet, uh, T.I. T.I., yes, the rapper. <laughs> yeah. Excellent. Excellent stuff. Yeah, that was my point, really, about Michael Pena. So good, a good lead in there, Irene. Thank you very much. Um, John, what's your, uh, what's your second point? Yeah, well, I think it leads in from what we were talking about, that whole, um, the mouthing by all the different characters of, of Louis' sort of explanation um, of how... Scott Lang gets to infiltrate into uh, Hank Pym's house, you know, thinking that um, there's a big stash of cash or something really valuable in the safe. But it's the influences of Edgar Wright. It, it's mm-hmm. the echo of Edgar Wright through um, through this this show. That there's parts of it where I was like thinking of space. Hot Fuzz, Shaun of the Dead, just how some of the scenes were built. It didn't necessarily have the kinetics of, obviously, Edgar Wright's direction. It was a, it was a different director, um, and he put his own stamp on it. Mm-hmm. But I thought that it felt like script aspects that, obviously, Edgar Wright and Joe Cornish would have, have done. And in particular, it was that move between the different people as they're talking with Michael Penner's voice. That felt very much like something that 
Edgar Wright would have written in a script, I think. Yeah, it kind of felt like Scott Pilgrim, didn't it? That kind of that kind of editing between as they're as they're talking, it felt like the Scott Pilgrim type of uh, of movie. So yeah, I thought that was quite interesting. Yeah, definitely. And then a few of the other ones um, were when they're tumbling. Yellow Jacket and Ant-Man, they're tumbling in the briefcase from the helicopter and they hit the cure um, on, uh, on the Apple, on the iPhone. I thought that was really good. Um, and obviously the mini train set with Thomas the Tank Engine, mm-hmm. really funny, just great kind of, you know, that Western feel of, of the battle on, on the train. Um, really good. And they, they felt like influences of Edgar Wright. Whether they were or not is another matter, but um, th- those three sequences were just really... They just had that little extra special uh, thing that just made it stand out and felt really fresh uh, and, and exciting in terms of action sequences. Yeah, I definitely think the uh, the cure scene probably got the biggest laugh in the audience where, uh, where Siri mishears the uh, prepare to be disintegrated as... Now playing the Cure Disintegration, uh, which is fantastic. Yeah, great moment, great moment in the in, in the film. Uh, Iron. Um, the biggest laugh in this in my cinema wasn't the suitcase scene. Actually, I think that me and uh, my friends were the only people who laughed at that. And then people kind of went, "Oh, the Cure," but it was because <laughs> there was loads of kids behind me. They probably didn't even know that the Cure are a band, and that's why yeah. the song coming on is funny. <laughs> I was going to turn around and explain it or mansplain it to them, but I said I wouldn't. Um, <laughs> the, the biggest laugh was when Thomas at the end lying on the car and his eyes are going back and forth. Yeah, <laughs> everybody else thought that was hilarious, and I think I, me and one other person were the only ones laughing at Michael Penna's talk. Really? <laughs> yeah, the kids were kind of like. As they backed up from the, the house. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that, that was quality. Back it up, back it up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the Thomas the Tank Engine, just the whole, the pan back as well, where the train's going round, and you just see these little lasers being fired by Yellow Jacket <laughs> mm-hmm. and all that, and then... I love that scene. Yeah. And, like, the cornfield thing with the, the, the carpet, carpet pile. Yeah. <laughs> that was great. <laughs> absolutely fantastically put together scene definitely it's one of my uh, one of my highlights of the film is that fight sequence that seems to go on for a long time but it's fantastic so many little great moments in there uh, but definitely the, the camera panning back a number of times to show how it's small they really are it's just a little train set yeah <laughs> exactly <laughs> really really good uh, Ari do you want to give us your next point um, I was going to say about uh, when John is saying there about Edgar Wright's influences um, the one bit I thought that was kind of like Hot Fuzz or Shaun of the Dead was the safe break because it was so quick, you know, he, he just hops over the wall and he's in so quick and he knows exactly what to do and he's barely telling them over the mic what, what he's doing. Mm-hmm. Um, and then he's like, I'm just waiting. But it only takes like two seconds for it to start happening and the door falls off. Yeah. I, I love that scene. I thought it was great. And then he, when you see that Hank Pym is actually watching him, yeah, you're like, ah, it must have been a setup. Exactly. Yeah. It's great. Because otherwise you're like, does he just steal the suit? That can't be it. He just steals the suit and then what? How does he actually become connected with them? But it doesn't, obviously, again, to about two seconds you were thinking that and then it's answered for you. Yeah. I love that. (laughs) Yeah, I I loved that. Um, I loved how they lifted his print. I thought that was really good. With the glue and the gas, the gas hob, I thought that was like really good. And then, yeah, seeing that Hank is actually watching him, and I love the old school safe. I love the old school um, fingerprint detector. It looks almost kind of like an, an SSR uh, type of 
old lock or, or fingerprint technology, mm-hmm. the old safe saying about the Titanic, that kind of link, and then um, just Hank with his old school console with all the red lights and the blue lights and yeah. the, the real old school computer screens. I, I loved that. I loved that. I thought that was nice little sort of stylistic touch. Yeah, and that's just made me laugh again. I bet the thought of, uh, of when he mentions the Titanic that everybody thinks it's just a film um, and starts commenting yeah. on the fact that Leonardo DiCaprio survived. Oh, no, he didn't. No, yeah. but the old lady survived. Um, yeah. Yeah, I thought that was character assassination, though, because they said the iceberg killed Leonardo DiCaprio. No, it didn't. Rose killed Leonardo DiCaprio. Oh, <laughs> her breasts did. We will, we will never get over Rose not finding Not letting him onto on the plank. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I love it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. But that leads quite nicely into my next point, so I'm gonna I'm gonna jump right in there. Um, this film does feel very different to the other Marvel films, and I think it, the one film that it feels most like to me is Captain America, because Captain America had that cool '70s kind of uh, espionage thriller about it, and this feels more like, as I, I kind of alluded to it earlier on, it feels more like an Ocean's Eleven. It feels like a heist movie the whole way through. There's two big heists that happen uh, in the in the movie. The first one, obviously, getting the getting the suit, and the second one, going into to Pym Technologies. But I like that he builds up his crew. I like that everybody has their own specialist dynamic, um, and that Hank is the kind of overall leader who's telling them, using his experience to teach the younger guys how to, how they can use their talents to the to the best of their abilities and rip off the uh, rip off the suit and, and destroy Pym Technologies. I think that's a really interesting decision by Marvel to do this as a very different kind of film to a superhero film. Yeah, and even just with um, Scott Lang sort of tells or asks Hank about bringing in um, his three pals, the other parts of the crew, and it's like Hank is like, oh, no, 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 not, not those like idiots, not those goons no. kind of thing. Yeah. We're doomed. <laughs> yeah, we're doomed if we do. But then obviously, you know, he brings them in and that 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 was a nice little touch, I thought. It was like, no, no, this is expanding way beyond what I was planning. Yeah. <laughs> uh, don't bring in the, these clowns kind of thing. I really, really like that. Um, I thought that was a, a cool touch, actually. I thought that about the Ocean's Eleven similarities as well with the Scott Lang is like Danny Ocean and the others are the others. <laughs> I was I was thinking I was thinking the heist movie thing the whole way through it. I was going mm-hmm. I didn't I hadn't actually seen that before that it was like a heist movie. Yeah, and at least it wasn't as pretentious as Ocean's 12 and 13. <laughs> oh my god. Anywho, <laughs> anyway, <laughs> moving on. Irene, do you want to give us your next point? Uh, what's the female for bromance? Cismance? <laughs> cismance. I cismance. I'm in a cismance. <laughs> um, with Evangeline Lilly. Cismance or a cismance? What? Okay, I'm in a bromance except we're girls <laughs> with Evangeline Lilly. I don't know how to say it. it. Maybe it's just romance. Maybe girlmance. Girlmance might girl work. That girlmance sounds so much nicer than cismance. Yeah, girlmance. <laughs> Okay, I'm in a I'm in a girl month with Evangeline Lilly. I oh, loved yes. it. I, oh, I I thought she was brilliant. I thought the character was brilliant. Um, she wasn't whingy because if she had been, I would have been the first one complaining about her. Um, <laughs> she wasn't a, a bit whingy. Um, and then when you hear the story about how her, basically since she was a little girl, her dad has not been there. Like everything just changed overnight. She lost her mother and she lost her father basically. Um. But she's not whingy. She got on with it. Like she has yeah. a great job. She's uh, doing the, you know, manipulating cross. 
or maybe not as well as she thought she was, but we only find that out later. Mm-hmm. Um, but I just thought the character was great and it led to a montage and everybody loves a montage. <laughs> <laughs> the training then with Lang, I just, that was great as well. Yeah. Like, and he completely underestimates her. Maybe because of her helmet hair, but he completely underestimates her. Like, um, and of course, not a hairish place at the end, and he's on the floor. Brilliant. Of, co- <laughs> of course, of course. Yeah, I do love Evangeline Lilly in, in this film. She's done now two big action roles now uh, with The Hobbit and this, uh, pretty much back to back, or at least released pretty close together. Uh, really good to see her taking on these roles because really in Lost, over time, she she became kind of just the damsel in distress quite a lot and kind yeah. of annoying. and bit whingy. Um, over, over, <laughs> like by the time you got to the fifth season, it's it's kind of, okay, girl, you go out and save yourself for once. Yeah. Um, what are you but, waiting uh, for? But she's done some really good roles and, and really liked her, liked her in this film. I thought it worked. Like, yeah. And I, I when I saw her name, you know, you're, I was like, oh, really? Okay. <laughs> yeah, I, I really I really liked her as well. I thought um the fight sequences was just fantastic, really good. Um I also loved her emotional uh, conversation and with with Hank when he actually explains that, you know, it, um her mom didn't just die, you know, she was saving the world from nuclear sort of holocaust in a sense. Um I thought that was really a great sort of emotional conversation. And I, I love the fact that her and Hank's relationship mirrors a dysfunction that was there with Scott and his daughter as well. And that kind of connected the two Ant-Men, in a sense. Yeah. Um, Scott Lang and, and uh, um, Hank Pym. I really liked that. And I thought that was all down to Hope Van Dyne and... Evangelina Lilly's kind of portrayal of it. I thought it was really, really good. And then she gets the cool post-credit scene, as you've said, Irene, where, you know, she's essentially going to be the new Wasp, mm-hmm. which will be fab. Yeah. And then she might also meet Doctor Strange as well. Maybe. Which would be cool. <laughs> I can see the two of them getting on, you know, as he helps her into the subatomic dimension. Yes, perhaps, perhaps. Can I jump in with a little negative point here? Her hairdo? Mm, that's that's not the negative point her I was going to talk about. That was very distracting. I liked her hair. Her hair was lovely, but it was quite distracting, and I thought... It looked wiggy. It did look a bit wiggy, but as somebody who cut their own fringe on Wednesday night... Um, and it doesn't look like that, but it was meant to. I was nothing but admiration. <laughs> I was relieved that um, at the end of the, near the end of the film, it started looking less perfect and a bit beat wavy actually near the end. And I was going, okay, that's more like mine. <laughs> that is true. It looked less wiggy as it moved through the film, definitely. But mm. at the start, yeah, it was so perfect. I was yeah. like, either that has just been solidified by about five cans of hairspray. Or it's a wig. Yeah. <laughs> and no one really uses hairspray that much at these days. Mm, Not like the you'd 80s. Be surprised. You'd be surprised. Yeah, on the um, brush, you know, brush it through. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> but my one little negative is actually about Jennifer and Dine. It's not about Hope. Um... Because I thought it, what was even more distracting than Hope Van Dyne's haircut was the fa- the family portrait that <laughs> <laughs> that was on the mantelpiece of the uh, of the Pym residence, where where not a great you're, you're family photo. <laughs> <laughs> you're wondering is this the only photograph he has of his wife? And unfortunately, she's got a a, a hat covering her face um, because clearly Marvel doesn't want to cast the actress in case they they want to go a different way in the future. Um, but very <laughs> distracting. Where yeah, that photo- that photographer sh- needed to be sacked. It really did because I mean it's like, look into the camera, smile, click, 
No, oh, you're that's fine. Your, your entire yeah. face is hidden by your massive hat. Um, <laughs> there you go. Okay, here, here's $50 for, for my my photographs. Yeah. We'll throw the frame in for free. We're not taking it again. <laughs> <laughs> so Michael Douglas, uh, sorry, Hank Pym is officially married to a hat. Yeah, yeah. That was my one big distracting moment of the film, I think. We see, maybe that's why her hair is so perfect. Because she's scarred by the fact that her mother is a hat. <laughs> my hair will never be covered. Never! <laughs> <laughs> but it was really weird. We, I mean, we both just like looked and went, did they really do that? I mean, I know that they don't want to cast her, maybe, but it doesn't matter. Just have a, at least a nice, tender moment. Caught on film in a photograph. They could have had it in the distance. <laughs> you know, it's in a field and they're up close and she's really far away. <laughs> <laughs> my, my next family photograph, I'm just going to tell everyone to turn to their backs to the camera. <laughs> oh no, just one member of the family. Smile. Uh, I just thought it was hilarious. Why choose that photograph to show? But anyway, oh gosh, lost it now. <laughs> Corey's told draws attention to it by looking at it further yeah. as well. It's he was like, probably going, what <laughs> Why f- is there a hat in them? <laughs> oh, well, I compose myself. John, do you want to give us your next point? Well, speaking of uh, Corey Stoll and Darren Cross, obviously, uh, Yellow Jacket, I thought um, this is again maybe a slight negative, but ultimately it builds into a positive. It's as, as the bad guys, Darren Cross, Yellow Jacket. I did feel that, like he was a very traditional antagonist um, to the hero, um, but I thought he was underdeveloped um, to an extent. I did really like um, his little turn to Michael Douglas to Hank Pym, where he said, "You know, why did you choose me to be your um, protege? Why did you know what did you see in me?" Um, you know, he felt that that Hank Pym ultimately represented a father figure to him where, again, like with um, Hope Van Dyne, there was a break there between the two. So Hank Pym's not great now at maintaining uh, meaningful (laughs) relationships. I I did like that, but overall I just thought that he was slightly underdeveloped, but then ultimately it didn't matter. When I thought about it a bit more, I thought actually it it was richer in the context of all the bad guys together, the overall stuff. And and what I mean by that is that it was interesting to see that Hydra is still active. Mm-hmm. For me, that was really good news. In Age of Ultron, I was kind of saying, is this the end of, of Hydra when we did our review podcast? And here we see that Hydra is still active. They're still looking for new technologies to ultimately be the, the bad guys. And I thought it was also good with the continuity with um, Carson's character, who was played by Martin Donovan, where, you know, back in 1989, as the Triskelion's being constructed, he's there with Howard and Peggy. And you're kind of going, is he Hydra then? That yeah. long-term infiltration of um, of S.H.I.E.L.D. by Hydra that's, that was shown in Captain America Winter Soldier. And then you see that Carson's representing Hydra, but is he part of Hydra? Was he then? Was Would he sell to Hydra then and be part of that infiltration? So I, I actually thought, again, more connections with other films with other story arcs and lines of other Marvel films, which was really, really good. Mm-hmm. Um, and certainly this is post-Age of Ultron because of 
the the new Avengers building that Ant Man goes to infiltrate to pick up some tech. Mm-hmm. So um, I really liked that, and I I thought in that wider world of the bad guys. I thought that um, Yellow Jacket and Darren Cross really fitted in. So that general feeling of him being slightly undeveloped as a single character, it kind of faded a bit for me um, over the course of the film as these other elements um, came together. And also just his involvement in the big final battle um, was great. I loved that f- the final fight scene. It seemed to go on forever, and there were so many different aspects to it that I really liked. So in, in that sense, it started off slight negative, but ultimately Darren Cross' uh, Yellow Jacket character was good. I did think at times he was just a general kind of antagonist mm-hmm. that was slightly underdeveloped. Yeah, I thought he was a bit one-dimensional. All right, then I thought they could have given him more to do. Like you said, he was just the big bad, and that was it, really. There was very little to it, except for he thought maybe there was a bit of a romantic thing with her, and then obviously that wasn't the case. Mm. Um, And like you said, John, the, when he asks Hank Pym, why did you pick me? But but like, really, th- that was kind of more disconnected. The, the rest of it was just like quite straight line, you're the baddie. Yeah, they kind of they kind of felt like there was some scenes about about his connection to the the Pym family. There was some scenes of those left on the cutting room floor, or just not even filmed potentially. Um, there there definitely should have been more more development to the character like that. A couple of things I did like about him, though, I must say. I know I know that they were highlighting that he's a bad guy, but I really liked some of the choices they made with this, where um, where in the in his tests in his laboratory, he's testing on lambs rather than rats, and doesn't see the difference between the two because he started to go a bit crazy. Um, you know, even the technicians that are in there are going, are you sure we're not supposed to be using rats? <laughs> um, but I love the fact that the weapon that he's using on people is supposed to be just shrinking them down to a smaller size, essentially, like you would see in a, in an, a cartoon, whereas it's not it's not uh, built correctly. So he's actually destroying people and turning them into uh, into piles of goop on the floor. You know, um, I like that that's that's essentially a broken machine that he's using rather than an actual weapon, which you usually see a supervillain have. Um, but yeah, overall, I did. I, I must say, I must. I, I liked him much more towards the end of the film. I liked him much more as the villain when he's got his suit. Uh, but earlier on in the film, as a, as the industrialist, it just felt a bit one note. Yeah, love Corey Stoll. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, great he to was... see Peter with a gun. Yeah, yeah, I mean, he was fabulous in House of Cards, um, and he, he played you know the alcoholic, troubled Peter like so well mm-hmm. um, in in season one of House of Cards, and I, I suppose that's probably one of the other aspects of it is that, in a sense, this is the first time I've really seen him uh, on screen since then. So that was kind of my immediate comparison. I suppose maybe we're biased, yeah, because he was so great at emoting in House of Cards, and you feel so nothing but empty for him and then obviously that's the end of him kind of thing um whereas in this i was going yeah you blast those lasers you show them you're no victim (laughs) (laughs) and he had to go subatomic to get him yes absolutely he did and and in fairness the yellow jacket suit was cool it was pretty awesome and i liked how his eyes, just the menace in his eyes through the yellow um, helmet and, and the eye screens of the helmet, that was that was really cool as well. He did become much more menacing uh, in the suit, um, so it was, it was really good. Yeah. Derek, what's your next point? 
And my next point is actually about, about a couple of Easter eggs, because we don't have Chris with us this time. Chris is usually our Easter egg guy. A um, couple of Easter eggs that are in there. We, we have four Ant-Men in this film. So from the comic books, there are four um, major characters, I suppose, that play Ant-Man. Um, there is obviously Scott Lang. There is Hank Pym, which are the two major Ant-Men that we see in the film. Um, also, the agent of Hydra. Um, is a rival to to Ant Man in the comic books and wants to take over uh, the suit after uh, after Hank Pym retires, um, but he's not allowed, so he becomes a, a villain in order to steal the suit and become uh, and become the Ant Man himself, which I thought was interesting. And the last one is actually Yellow Jacket. Yellow Jacket was another version of Ant Man. He was actually not a bad guy. He was just another suit for Ant Man. So uh, so I thought that was quite interesting. That there's that there's lots of allusions to the comic books here. Loads of ants. Mm-hmm. Including yeah. poor Anthony. <laughs> poor Anthony. I did almost like burst down into an emotional wreck when that little wing fluttered to the ground. Yeah, there was Anthony... outcry, outcry in the cinema when Anthony died. <laughs> I, w- I was there, kind of going, you know, he was Ant Man's faithful flying ant, and you know, it felt a bit sad. Yeah. And I never thought I would feel emotional over a dead ant. <laughs> um, and I must say, you can always tell the the sociopaths, um, you know, because they pick on on pets and and small creatures, you know, pulling off the wings. It's just that um, Darren Cross did it with a gun, shot poor Anthony in the head. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very sad. <laughs> the bullet just ripped through his thorax, left his wings fluttering down. Don't speak of it. <laughs> very sad I have to say I'm, I'm a bit more cold hearted I, um, I, I saw the scene coming a mile away um, I thought it was a, 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 a telegraphed moment from the first time you saw that there was a, a, an ant that had a saddle built into its back um, you knew it was coming at the end of the film so um, I, I didn't have the empathy with them that I would have for say Rocket Raccoon or, uh, well, or Groot uh, as a character it doesn't talk either so that doesn't no happen. absolutely <laughs> I mean it wasn't the same as Rocket Raccoon or group, but and in fairness, like you know, Yellow Jacket is a very good shot if you can pick out the the one ant in the mass of ants that carries Ant Man. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was kind of like you know he was the faithful um, little ants that they had infiltrated into the New Avengers base and had originally picked him up. Um, and was being controlled by Hank Pym, so th- there was that connection. But yeah, I agree. There was no talking. But R.I.P. Poor Anthony. Poor Anthony. To our fun homies. Yeah, and Scott Lang <laughs> names him, so he was important. I didn't say he wasn't important. <laughs> oh, on that on that His bombshell. Oh, oh, the look I'm getting <laughs> uh, on that bombshell. Irene, take us away. What's your uh, What's your next point? Um, my I had this as a point, so it's kind of continuing on from John's, but I the ants like. Mm-hmm. The ants in general in the film, <laughs> I thought the the fire ants, the the bitey ones, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, with the, the monster fo- ones, four on the Schmidt in pain index or whatever. Um, I'd say that guy, uh, the guard who got knocked out right after he got bitten in the neck, was probably better off, because yeah. uh, at least he only felt it for a couple of seconds. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, yeah, I was like, they didn't get any credits either because I looked. <laughs> oh, poor ants! <laughs> they didn't get any credits. And like, there was hundreds of them. <laughs> it must have been like being a slave in Spartacus and not getting the credit. <laughs> it must have been. I'm it's sure there the will slave. be the ant uprising very soon. <laughs> I say millions of ant farms would be sold all over the world today. 
<laughs> after people seeing the film yesterday. I am certain of it. I thought that scene that where where Hank introduces uh, Scott Lang to the to the ants for the first time. I think that was just set up to show this is what an amazing ant farm looks like if you're a multi billionaire. Yeah, um. <laughs> and if you clear your mind and think really clearly, you can actually talk to them. You can talk to them. Yeah, yeah, you can Doctor Doolittle them into doing anything for you. <laughs> and as we saw, that that's no small thing, what they can do when they Absolutely. work together. Yes, nothing yeah. small in this film at all. Really. <laughs> <laughs> and I love the dog ant. I totally agree, Irene. The, uh, the, the ants were, were absolutely brilliant. Really liked the idea and how they were used because... Tell me, you told me a year ago that that was going to be a feature of this film. I would not, oh, well, I was not uh, hugely excited about seeing it. Um, I think they did a great job of uh, of setting it up and using them sparingly, but well um, Definitely. throughout the film. Yeah. It's like a good Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Actually, speaking of that, there's a little bit of trivia for you. This movie was originally supposed to be made in about 1992, um, but was unfortunately the movie Honey, I Shrunk the Kids came out. Uh, about a year beforehand, and it was cancelled and put on hold for twenty years because the concept was too close to it. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Which I thought was quite an interesting bit of a uh, bit of trivia. Yeah. Honey, I shrunk the kids and then enlarged them again, <laughs> <laughs> and then shrank them too then much, shrank them. and then they went into the doctors, and then went subatomic. Yeah. Doctor Strange. <laughs> Derek, what's your uh, final point? My final point: the one big character we haven't mentioned so far, Anthony Mackie as the Falcon. I was really surprised to see him in here. Um, really good, really interesting. Look, last last time we saw him was in uh, was in the Avengers for a very quick scene, um, where he very much is telling the Avengers that he's not connected as part of them. That's Cap's job. He's he's here as part of the part of the the new team, um, essentially. So his his job seems to be protect to protect the new facility of uh, of the new Avengers, I suppose. Um, Really good to see Anthony Mackie in this role. It, it's kind of to see him kind of branch out a little bit from his role in Captain America and have, you know, scenes on his own where he's dealing with different characters in the universe. Really good. Um, I do like his him as an actor. But there is one problem that I had, which was within about three seconds of Scott Lang arriving at the facility, for some reason a Falcon can focus in on him directly, instantly, which kind of takes away the whole power of the Ant-Man suit uh, almost instantly. I know it shows how great Falcon is and how great a superhero he is, but it does take away the power of the Ant-Man suit if somebody can just press a button on their glasses and can instantly focus on them constantly and not get beaten. Yeah, um, or, or seemingly not, actually, because it just seemed that it focused in on him and he, he could swat him away, whereas all the other bad guys seem to have huge problems mm-hmm. in trying to deal with a guy going from large to small. Um, Falcon, who had never seen any of this technology before because it's not been around for 40 years, yeah. is able to handle it really well. And I thought it did slightly undermine um, Ant-Man as a character, but I presume that the reason why it was done like that was so that it didn't undermine um, Sam Wilson or the Falcon. Um, so I can see why they did it, but it, it made for a weird kind of uh, confrontation, yeah. um, to be honest. But, I mean, ultimately, Ant-Man does win. Yes, but it did give us the uh, the obligatory Avenger on Avenger violence um, where Falcon fights Ant-Man. It's a, it has to happen if you have two Avengers in a film. They have to punch each other at some point. Um, and it does all get redeemed at the end of the film, I suppose, uh, as as we see Falcons trying to track down Ant Man so that he can uh, he can use him in a future scheme or a future plan potentially to join the new Avengers, which I thought was quite interesting. Yeah, no, it was. I thought it was great to see um, him involved, definitely in the same way that there was Peggy Carter and Howard Stark, um, and of course 
it features, as you say, in the second post-credit scene, which is right at the end of, of the film. So definitely, you know, we hope that you stayed right to the end of the film. And if not, um, go back and watch it again and have a look at it because we do see the, you know, it is a hint and a precursor at Captain America Civil War. You have Captain America there. You have Falcon uh, referencing Ant-Man, but you also see Bucky Barnes yes. with, as Winter Soldier with his arm captured. Yeah, uh, the Winter Soldier has finally been trapped. Um, great bit of dialogue. I had to uh, had to listen very closely to the dialogue because uh, it's quite interesting. Essentially, um, Falcon asks Cap whether they should call Tony Stark to uh, to tell them that they've captured Winter Soldier. Um, he says they won't believe us. He probably won't believe us. Uh, and Cap replies with, well, the Accord may not even let him come and help us out anymore. Uh, the Accord, as in agreement, could be a reference to the uh, to the Superhuman Registration Act, which is going to be a big kickoff point for the Civil War in the next Captain America movie. So really exciting to see a bit of that. Uh, all the way throughout the credits while waiting for the final sequence, all I could hear from the suit beside me was, this isn't going to be another shawarma, is it? It's not going to be another shawarma, <laughs> is it? Please, please make me this, this be a good scene at the end of it. And then it finished, the lights came up, and John went, that wasn't another shawarma, that was a great closing scene. Yeah. really enjoyed it. Now, I had a problem with the shawarma scene. I just thought it meant nothing. It was mm-hmm. pointless. I prefer to have seen that in a, a tease or something um, leading up to the, the film. I was actually praying for Doctor Strange to be there, but in the end, um, whilst that didn't happen, I love this thing from Marvel where they have these post-credit uh, scenes. And I think because everything's connected, it's all connected, the fact that it needs to connect into the other films I think is hugely important for me. And so when they just do a, a jokey one, I'm not so much of a fan of those. I love it where they really kind of and seriously show something exciting and I think with uh, Falcon, Captain America and, and the Winter Soldier that was exciting that was a big scene it didn't feel like a throwaway thing and mm-hmm. of course with Captain America Civil War next year um, the first Marvel film for 2016 um, uh, Captain America 3 and the start of Phase 3 then you know it was hugely um, important to have a uh, a meaningful post-credit scene, and I thought they did that twice. So it was brilliant for me. Yeah, yeah, there's nothing worse than sitting through like 25 minutes worth of credits to see Shawarma and Howard the Duck <laughs> and Howard the Duck. Oh, you weren't a fan of that one either. <laughs> On that note, uh, John, do you want to give us your final yeah. point? The suit, um, the Ant-Man suit. You know, I thought it was great, and I loved the first putting on of the suit by Scott Lang. Um, I really, really liked it. Um, I thought the whole bathtub scene where he falls in and then it gets turned on. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a good job we didn't see uh, Michael Pena's <laughs> junk um, as he's getting yeah, Michael Pena's penis um, as we get into uh, as he gets into the bath. Um, but I loved the whole bathtub scene where you know the the bath filling up turns into tidal waves. I loved him going um, out the window getting shot through walls and pipes. I loved the rave and him dodging the stiletto heel. Mm-hmm. I thought that was really cool. Him being on the vinyl uh, was really cool. Was really interesting. All of that was really good. And I just really as well then liked the look of the the suit and the helmet. And for me, the helmet so at certain moments looked 
really Star Wars and Stormtroopery, mm. um, or even like the Tie Fighter pilot head um, helmet. It looked really, really um, cool. Yeah, and I loved the colors. I loved the fact that it was it looked modern, but it also did look like a period piece from the 70s or you know it looked really good and for that i i just i love that i thought the introduction of it through the um the heist of hank pym's safe and and house was good and the bathtub scene and so on really good yeah i really liked where he burst out of the hoover yes yeah that was brilliant because that shows you that, that he does still have his full human strength even when he's reduced down and yeah. when he hits the car roof. Yeah, that. the little pink <laughs> as he hits the... <laughs> little dent. Yeah. <laughs> that was cool. Yeah, that oh, was fantastic. Great way to show off the suit and great way to show off the powers as well. Really, really enjoyable, actually. Yeah, yeah. The only thing I was thinking was when he... It's like it wore off. Like, he hardly brought himself back to full size on the roof. Or maybe he did, but I didn't think he knew how to do that. Yeah. Maybe it was just an accident. Maybe he hit the other button that brings yeah. him back. So, Irene, what's your uh, final point? 377 days until I see Kathy is my final point. <laughs> I thought that was really mean. They knew what he was in jail for. He didn't mm-hmm. kill somebody. He didn't even hurt anybody. They got their money back, I presume. Like, the, his family obviously knew what he had done. I really liked Bobby Cannavale as Paxton. Mm-hmm. Um, and I really liked at the end that he was he was actually helping him. Because obviously maybe he didn't think he was such a good guy before. But like, what's Judy Greer's excuse? 377 days. I was like, of course, sure. I turned to crime for God's sake. <laughs> <laughs> I'd probably turn to crime for that, let's be honest. But uh-huh. like, to, I was, that's just ridiculous. Very you can't sad, keep it? him from seeing her. Like, and she's crazy about him. And I love the scene where he gave her the rabbit. Yeah. Oh, like, that's so cute. It's the cutest, ugliest little thing ever. And then she smiles and she's got her front teeth missing as well. So it was just really, I thought that was really cool. Cause, they you knocked know. them out for the film. <laughs> <laughs> I hope not. Let's hope not. But no, that, that was really cool. Yeah, no, I, I like that, definitely. Um, the, the crazy, scary rabbit. Because yeah. <laughs> obviously Lewis has already tried to convince him and he's just having none of it. And then there's the whole Baskin Robbins thing. Your man's like, yeah, you're cool. It's a cool crime, and then he's, of course, you're fired. Yeah, <laughs> it's like, I oh, know. I was very, it was very sad to think that uh, he couldn't even go to his daughter's birthday party. You know, it's, yeah, uh, and yeah. like that's obviously for those of you who don't know, 377 days is more than a year. Yeah, <laughs> so you would have missed year. next year's as well. Yeah, I know. Oh gosh, yeah. And Judy Greer as well. She was playing another mother, um, because yeah. she was be the mom in uh, Jurassic World that <laughs> that's just right. recently. That's right. Yeah. Um, so, not yeah. very likable. Sorry, Judy. <laughs> Work oh, on it. Judy. <laughs> I know. I know. She it's... was Judge Judy and executioner. She was. <laughs> I wonder if that line would have been in there if, uh, if Edgar Wright had, I think had directed maybe. the film. I think he might have used it again. <laughs> uh, that's the overall top five for this film for Ant Man the movie. Um, Aaron, do you have any notes about the film that you want to talk about? Um, I really liked the dog ant. Aww. At the end, I thought it was cute that he was still under the table at the very end. But it made um, it seem like it was only Cassie that could see him. And he's the size of the table. <laughs> <laughs> but they're just used to him. They're just used, used to him. Begging for scraps at the table at this stage. <laughs> yeah, I, I, was, I was expecting that, you know, he was going to be chased down by a, a pest controller or, a, you know, an exterminator. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, maybe. Um, well, why didn't they just shrink him back? 
Surely he's missing his his hive. Obviously, he's getting lots of scraps from under the table, so he's very happy with himself. (laughs) They work really hard. He's probably reorganized the whole house. (laughs) (laughs) Just the hoovering. (laughs) Possibly, possibly. Big pile of sand in the front garden. (laughs) <laughs> um, and my other note was just about when Scott Lang says to Hank Pym it's not like we're going to go and get an Avenger or something Yes. and if it was standalone then obviously that's him he, you know it's a little job and you kind of go ha ha but then Hank Pym answers him seriously Yeah. I thought that was a really nice touch it was quite good wasn't it yeah it wasn't just a uh, it wasn't just something that you'd say in I don't know maybe Fantastic Four or something like that where you're trying to reference that they're connected he can actually give it an actual reason in in life as to why he wouldn't call in the biggest uh, the big team to do this job yeah really good really good yeah. <laughs> Derek have you got any notes I have a few actually this uh, this film was laden again Irene I don't understand some of the critics saying this isn't connected this film was laden with, with some really interesting connections uh, another one I noticed was the big first time in the Marvel Cinematic Universe there's a mention of a guy who can jump a guy who can swing and a guy who can crawl up walls who's mm-hmm. that that's Spider-Man uh, now that Marvel have the have the connected rights to uh, to use the character of Spider-Man, we're going to actually see him uh, played by Tom Holland coming up in the next Marvel film, uh, Captain America: Civil War, and this is the reference to uh, to Spider-Man, the first one they've been able to make in uh, in over twenty years. So uh, a really exciting moment for all of us nerds sitting. Yeah, in the audience that was there. a very cool moment, definitely. Yeah. I I was trying to think, oh, who's the guy that can jump and who's the guy that can swing? And I was kind of going through, and then obviously. The guy who can crawl at walls definitely Spider-Man. But I was thinking, who are the other two? Who are they referencing there? And I was like, oh, it's all the same one. Yes, exactly. <gasps> He's got three powers. He's, He's got three jump. powers. <laughs> he can he jump, jump. I can. Go. I can do that. I can swing on a swing. And I can jump up walls. I can't crawl. Short sure, walls. Sure, <laughs> uh, but I'm really, really excited about that. Another little little uh, fun reference. The other cop who uh, who is working with Cassie's stepfather Um is Avon Barksdale from The Wire. Yes. And Idris Elba, who is Stringer Bell, was in all the Thor movies and was in The Avengers. So uh, so now we have both Avon Barksdale and Stringer Bell from The Wire in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. How cool is that one? It's going to get druggy. We just need Bodhi. Where's <laughs> Bodhi? Yeah, where's Bodhi? <laughs> That's yeah. It. And it's going to get all druggy and trippy when Doctor Strange comes on board. So it's just moving into full-blown Baltimore drug corner. <laughs> Possibly. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Uh, just one other point I wanted to make about about um, Scott Lang um, that I just didn't mention earlier on was that even though it's an unusual choice for Marvel to have a character that is coming out of prison and that has committed a crime essentially as their central central hero, it does kind of hark back a little bit to Guardians of the Galaxy. Um, all of the Guardians are essentially killers, murderers, and and uh, thieves from across the galaxy. You just didn't see what they did. And same with uh, with. Scott Lang, that he is someone who has stolen stuff from a, from a corporation. You eventually find out that he's done it for the right reasons. It's not a, a huge crime, I suppose, if you if you're stealing to give to the little guy. Um, but it's interesting that Marvel chose this as as their as their next touch point after Guardians of the Galaxy last year with with all those rogues and uh, traveling around. Yeah, because they're all locked up and put into the kiln, the big prison there um, in outer space. Yeah. Yes, they are. Yeah, so uh, so another another group of prisoners who escape and become our heroes and that. Um, but it does lead to the reference to one of the comic book series of Ant Man, which was called the Irredeemable Ant Man. Um, essentially, where Scott and uh, Hank are talking to each other about you know the fact that this will give Scott the uh, ability to redeem himself in the eyes of his daughter. So um, so yeah, I like that little play. 
uh, that they use. Okay, that's it for my notes. Uh, John, do you um, want to answer It's just simply the relationship of uh, Hank Pym to S.H.I.E.L.D. and that whole, you know, that he stepped away from it, he stepped back from it because he realized the power of his particles, the Pym particles. Mm-hmm. And I, I really kind of like that, um, that relationship with S.H.I.E.L.D. because, in a sense, Captain America has those questions over S.H.I.E.L.D. as well that we saw in um, The Winter Soldier. And I think you see an earlier incarnation of that with Hank Pym kind of saying, like, you know, I need to step back from being involved in S.H.I.E.L.D. and doing um, their work. I mean, in particular because he doesn't like um, the Carson and who's played there by Martin Donovan. He doesn't like his character. He gives him a bloody nose, which we see again, uh, which is, again, a nice little echo through mm-hmm. through the movie. But I, I kind of like that relationship with S.H.I.E.L.D. again, just that he's saying, nope, this isn't for me. I'm stepping out of it because I don't want you with this technology. Um, I don't like the idea of what you will do with this technology. In a sense, maybe thinking that even S.H.I.E.L.D. would take it down the route that Darren Cross does. Mm-hmm. So a really nice little uh, point there and, and relationship with S.H.I.E.L.D., that idea, again, that S.H.I.E.L.D. and HYDRA are two sides of the same coin, and just it's your vantage point or viewpoint that, that differs. Um, and I think you got that again there with, with Hank Pym, um, a nice little uh additional layer to the the shield organization yeah yeah absolutely and i just remembered one final point that i'm going to throw in uh just a little nice throwaway gag with michael pena when he's going in to become the security guard for pym technologies and he keeps trying to ask can he whisk can he be the guy that whistles and what's he whistling he's whistling it's a small world after all Nice, yeah. little, uh, nice little touch for Ant-Man. <laughs> and a nice little comedy moment to close out our discussion of Ant-Man the movie. Um, so, Irene, as always, up to you first. Do you defend Ant-Man? I definitely defend Ant-Man. I, just lo- I thought it was really good from start to finish. I thought the pace of it was really good. There was no lag. Um, I thought the character was really well portrayed. Paul Rudd really worked because um, he has the softer side of, so that really works with the daughter and we you know with the trying to go straight you're completely on his side for not going straight yeah. with the whole you know evil Judy Greer and the 377 days thing yeah and Baskin Robbins knows everything yeah yeah I was actually going to ask does anybody know if there's more to that or is that just a a thing they decided to do <laughs> I think it's the thing they decided to do they've already cast dispersions on uh, on uh, Radio Shack, I think, in one of the previous films, saying that they're a, they're a cover uh, for Hydra, so now it's Baskin Robbins' turn. It's like CIA. Um, I just wanted to say as well, Derek, you probably know more this, that apparently Ant Man dated Jessica Jones for a while. Ooh, yes, Ooh. he did. You are absolutely right. Yes, there good is a spot, uh, Irene. Very good catch. Yes, um, that is in the Alias uh, Alias series. There is a uh, a mention of Scott and uh, and Jessica Jones getting together. Yeah. I was wondering, hopefully he'd come into the series, maybe. Oh, very good. Ooh, Show his abs again to Jessica. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, calm down. Um, uh, John, do you defend Ant-Man? I do. I very much do. Um, I would give this um, four massive Thomas the Tank engines out of five. And to me, this was like the fire ants that was on fire. 
Um, I loved it. Um, I thought it was really connected in with the Marvel Universe. I loved the, the family dynamics that were being played out. I loved the way it all built up to the big fight sequence at, at the end between Ant-Man and Yellowjacket. Um, I liked that they brought in Hydra. I liked that they brought in S.H.I.E.L.D. and Peggy and Howard and Falcon. I loved the Ant-Man suit, how it looked. I loved how they did the ants. Um, Evangelina Lilly was great as Hope Van Dyne. Heavy girl. It was really good. I loved that you could spot influence of Edgar Wright. And also, importantly, just to note that, you know, him and Joe Cornish, who had spent an awful lot of time on this film, were um, credited in, in the end credits. That's That was a good... Um, thing to happen and um, it would have been slightly strange if they weren't yeah. um, so for me this was a really good end um, to, to phase two I thought it was a really good film and I loved the whole build up to um, I don't care whether it is or it isn't to me it was a great build up to Doctor Strange by starting to talk about other dimensions and realms and going subatomic that to me smacked of moving into the astral plane uh, and that kind of dimension and I hope that's how it goes and um, to really kind of bring it the Doctor Strange element to well so that too that connection brilliant I loved it and um, so for me yeah four out of five definitely and just how they did the fight sequences with Thomas the Tank Engine, going from small to large, you know, the jumping through the keyhole, the running along the gun barrel, the big uh, fight on the train set, really, really cool. Loved mm -hmm. it. Derek, do you defend Ant-Man? Yes, I do. Uh, my gosh, when <laughs> walking into the cinema, seeing uh, the opening scene with Michael Douglas, uh, who is one of my absolute favourite actors, I'm not ashamed to admit I've loved everything he's done, really, um, right back from when I saw him first in, in like Wall Street and uh, Romancing the Stone, all the way through uh, through the, the 80s and 90s films that I loved him do, and seeing him de-aged and looking at his best, walking into a room and then realising that the woman he's talking to is Peggy Carter, which I was not expecting at all. A great moment for me, and from that moment onwards, I had a smile on my face right to the end of the film, right to that closing uh, second credit scene um, with Captain America leading us into Civil War. Fantastic. They did a great job. Um, you know, th there's nothing really I can point to that I'm really... Uh, uh, that I really disliked about the film. I think I'm going to go and see it again, um, hopefully in IMAX this time, because you want to see the tiniest superhero in the biggest, most gigantic screen in the country. <laughs> That's kind of what I want to do. Um, really, really enjoyed it. Absolutely defend it. Cool. I think with that, thank you so much for listening. If you want to listen to the Agent Carter podcast that we're doing at the moment, or um, we will also be back for Fantastic Four in August. Um, the other... Uh, Marvel but non-Marvel uh, film out this year um, please find us and listen to us on www.defenderstvpodcast.com forward slash iTunes or search Defenders TV Podcast on any good 
podcast catcher such as Player FM, and we should hopefully be there. Subscribe, and we will pop into your feed automatically uh, and be like um, a best friend uh, there waiting for you so that you can listen to our dulcet tones. <laughs> Absolutely. If you want to send in your thoughts about Atman, Agent Carter, Daredevil, or any of the upcoming Netflix TV shows that we'll be covering, send them into feedback at defenderstvpodcast.com. Uh, Irene, any parting words? Um, if you haven't seen it, go see it. If you have seen it, go see it again. <laughs> Listen to this before and after. <laughs> Not before, sorry. Mm-hmm. Before and after the second time. <laughs> <laughs> and then email us in and tell us that we're wrong on whatever points that you think we're wrong on. <laughs> and tell us that we're really funny and entertaining. Obviously, I love me hearing that as well. Of course, of course. <laughs> of yes. course, of course. And do it, do it on iTunes so other people can find the podcast. That's always enjoyable. So thank you very much for listening. This certainly was a tale to astonish. Thanks for listening. The Defenders TV podcast will return. Bye 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 b